Is it Friday already? Man. This week went by quick. I, yeah, I was only here for two days. Actually, there were times when this week just seemed to drag out. <laughs> and then there were times when it just went by really quick, but... I can't believe I've been back for two days. Yesterday, after the show, I was dead. I mean, dead. Jet lag. Okay? I don't know why they call it that, but, you know, it's never hard for me to travel to the East Coast, you know, or travel to the Central Time Zone. It's always really difficult coming back. You know, so last night, you know, at the dinner table, you know, I, I was falling asleep and my face was falling in the mashed potatoes and... And it would even the Bible reading time at the family dinner table just wasn't quite that edifying. And then as soon as dinner was over, I just I said, "Honey, I, I'm gonna just lie down for just a minute." And that minute lasted like twelve hours. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was drooling on the you know you know I was so I was so out of it you know you got the drool thing going on it was terrible. So today I I don't feel quite out of it like I did yesterday. But, uh, yeah, of course, you know, I'm getting old, so, you know, and I'm sure somebody's going to email me and they're going to say, you know, Chris, there's uh, if there, I have a remedy for jet lag and all you got to do is take two eggs, raw eggs, mix it with Tabasco sauce and a little bit of salt and pepper and some cayenne, whatever, and you'll, you'll never have jet lag. I get those kind of emails from people. <laughs> you know, one, <laughs> one time I was talking about the fact that, uh, you know, from time to time, I, you know, I get acid indigestion if I eat really spicy uh, Italian food. I got several emails from people telling me what you really need to do is go get some digestive enzymes. And I'm going, ew, <laughs> I appreciate the thought. Um, maybe I, that might be something worth looking into, digestive enzymes. Uh, you know, but so if you ingest digestive enzymes, you don't digest them then. Yeah, just uh, oh, there you go, briquettes. I have a little charcoal filter going on there. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. In case you haven't figured that out yet, I'm Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Christ, and today is Friday, and uh, we got a great program lined up for you today. We have got lots of stuff to go through. We, I think we have to get into some of the listener email, and I, I, I apologize. It's going to take me a few days to catch up on all of these. But uh, re- regarding the Doug Paget interview, I've been getting quite a bit of email, and Doug Paget even posted up, uh, you know, the, the interview on his website. So, you know, the the mighty Doug Paget. Now, some of you have noticed that you know I didn't go after him. You know, it's like you know why did I let him talk? And I, I got to tell you, one of the things that's important in in the world of discernment and apologetics, and just courtesy in general, is if somebody disagrees with you. It's a good idea to hear them out and let them define their terms. Because one of the things you'll find is, is that m- many times we, we will have the same words that we use with people, but they pour different meaning in, meanings into those words. Now, the emergent church movement is a difficult movement to, to really figure out where the boundaries are and, and to define. And one of the reasons why it's difficult to define is because there's no center to the movement. And Doug Paget is just one of the voices in the movement. Okay, he's just one. I mean, there's many voices. Uh, some of the top voices would be Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, you know, the, uh, Shane Claiborne. Those are some other names. Uh, Rob Bell is emergent. A lot of people, you know, 
well, was he really emerging? Well, the emerging guys consider Rob Bell in their camp, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so the the thing is, is that without there being a center, okay, there is no central doctrinal statement. They bristle at the thought of that. And so each of these guys have an ind- have a voice that they're contributing into their emergent conversation. So as a result of it, it's it's very difficult to define. In fact, I'm working on a book, and uh, it's a little delayed at this point, uh, just because of all the, how busy we've been with Pirate Christian Radio. And and the book I'm writing is called uh, Deconstructing Emergent Errors. And the basic premise behind the book is that um, you can't you can't look at it as a whole. You have to take a look at each of the individual voices and their contributions, and then really, you know, compare that to Scripture. Now, one of the things you'll notice is is that the the, the postmodern guys, you know, they 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 talk about not truth not being an absolute. We talked about that with Doug Paget, and the, they they try to distance themselves from modern presuppositions, and they engage in something called deconstructionism. What I did with Doug is, you know, some of the questions I asked him is, you know, he made a point about the fact that he believes that he reads the scriptures accurately. Well, now that's an interesting concept. Many people who are postmodern would would wonder why would he say such a thing? Um, (laughs) Why would he say such a thing? Um, Well, he believes that he's reading scripture accurately. That actually creates some common ground for us with uh, with Doug Paget. Okay, well, if he believe, and that's why I asked the follow-up question when he said that he believes that he's reading the Bible accurately. I asked him, "Do you believe that people read the Bible inaccurately?" And it's, he said, "Yes." So that actually creates some common ground with with us and Doug Padgett. Okay, well, okay, we're dealing with enough of a concept of truth and what it's all about to be able to say, okay, there are people who read the Bible accurately and those who read it inaccurately. And he even went so far as to admit that those who are in the word faith movement are using the Bible in an improper way. Okay, so we've got some common ground, but you'll notice that if you go back and listen to the interview, immediately he he tried to distance himself. Well, we don't want to just pick on them. We just want to pick on them. Well, I, I understand he's trying to be polite, you know, and that's that's all well and good, but. Um, the purpose of the interview was to really give him enough leeway, ask enough questions so that we can it, take a look at the body of what he said, find the, the pieces of it where he's speaking you know, in, in ways where he believes he's correctly understanding or accurately understanding what the Bible teaches or what Paul is saying, and, and work with the definitions that he gave. And then we can go back and we can uh, we can compare what he said to the Word of God. If I had made that a polemical debate with uh, Doug, then I don't think it would have been as helpful. And the reason it wouldn't have been as helpful is because it, I would have, you know, I would have had to listen to small pieces of what he was saying, draw conclusions about what he was trying to to say, and then from there, um, you know, decide whether or not you know what he was saying was biblical or unbiblical. And it's possible in those situations that you just don't have enough data to draw the correct conclusions. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend a little bit of time going back through some of the things that Doug Paget said as a means of, all right, here's what he said. This is he, I'm going to play these quotes for you in context. And now let's take these ideas and compare them to the Word of God. Is this an accurate picture of what the Bible teaches? And I will say that I believe that the Bible is an authority, and its authority comes from Christ. Okay? So 
Anyway, we got some emails regarding Doug here. Um, Nathan writes, he says, I just finished listening to your interview with Doug Padgett, and all I can say is that the man is definitely a Platonist. <laughs> and therefore not worthy of a response. And he, he put a little emoticon, basically, winking smile face. I think he was being sarcastic. Maybe one day his story and my story will join together with a larger story of God's active presence in the world's meta-narrative. And then... <laughs> Nathan, I detect that you have talked to emergent people before. <laughs> uh, he says, see what Doug has done to my brain? Now I'm going to go try to get some sleep. In all seriousness, thanks for interviewing him, and I look forward to your listeners' comments and your reflections and critique. So, Ladea Gloria, thank you, Nathan. We will be talking about some of that today. Um, that's, let's see. That's about the Name the Author contest. Oh, Roseboro. Getting old. Here we go. <clears throat> Logan writes, says, when Doug is talking about Paul making a doctrinal point about the intermittent state or part of the greater epistle, that whether we live or die, we are in the presence of the Lord, he shows he simply doesn't understand the function of the scripture. Now, this is an interesting point, Logan. He says, God made scripture to pull a culturally and politically relevant point to chew bubblegum and to walk at the same time. Doug, it's both. In all of scripture, God is showing both the wonderful artist side and the practical engineer side. We should never favor one over the other or say it is impossible for Scripture to do both. When I look at Genesis 1, you can look at it with a scientist's eyes and notice how God worked to create the uniformity of nature, and you can look at it from the artist's side as how God used these beautiful word pictures to create everything from the flea to the moon. Try reading Genesis outside, taking a break, look up at the stars in the night, and you can look at it from the theologian's eyes, noticing that it is God who initiates everything. It is God who must be glorified. It is God who, in a cycle of creation, destruction, and recreation, has both justice and mercy. But the amazing thing is that, that Scripture allows for all of this at the exact same time. God's Word was made for all of these things at the same time. To favor one over another denies the Word of God its power. Great interview. I'd comment on some other things, but I'm sure that other people will pick up them, especially how we know the truth bit. Very interesting. Logan, great email. And, uh, you know, in logic, we talk about what's called the bifurcation fallacy. Bifurcation fallacy. It's just bifurcation is a base as a simple, you know, three dollar word. It's not quite five dollars because it's not that long. But it's a $3 word, and, and the idea behind it is, is that you're cutting something up and then making it something either or. And uh, and the reason why many times it's a, a logical fallacy is because sometimes things are not either or. It can be both and, or there can be a third option. It could be this, that, or the other thing. And so um, this is, I, I picked up on this as well, but Logan, I think you said it far better than I could have said it. And and what he's done here is bifurcate, okay? And uh, we'll, we'll actually listen to uh, Doug Padgett's quote pretty soon here. Uh, where he's talking about how Paul writes this beautiful letter, you know, the, this epistle to the Philippians, and and he, you know, he bristles at the idea that in the middle of this letter that somehow Paul would slip into engineering language to tell us about the cosmology of the universe or how things work or the, about the intermediate state. But the reality is, is that it's both beautiful and technical. And and Logan, you bring that out very nicely. And you're right. Many of us, and this is this is something we got to take into consideration. The human race is very diverse, very, very diverse. We have different personalities. We all uh, approach things through the lenses of our experience and our culture. And um, some people I know are very artistic. 
And, you know, myself, I was a graphic artist for many years, but the reality is, is that I was never a really good artist. And the reason why is because I was too much of the engineer. I was a technician, but not the, the artistic side was very difficult to, to get out of me. And then I had a friend when I was working at, uh, at uh, National Medical Registry who was an amazing musician. And uh, what amazed me about him was that he, um, even though we were the same age, uh, similar experiences, we were worlds apart in how we viewed things because he was, he was truly a musical artist. And so he, he felt things differently than I did, and he viewed the world differently than I did. And it was always really interesting for me to, to bounce ideas off of him because the feedback that he would give me about things, um, he would point things out that I would never think of because of the way I'm wired, and he's just wired differently than I am. And so um, the way we would approach uh, Genesis or some, some passages of Scripture would be completely different, part of that being because I'm, of a, I'm more of a technical engineering theologian type, and he was very much an artistic type. And it's not that, uh, that either one is true or false. That's kind of the wrong way to look at it. And it's not, it, I'm not trying to say that because you have a different personality makeup that, there's, that, that uh, art, artists have no valid uh, hermeneutic that they bring to the table. Actually, sometimes they'll pick things up out of the text and exegete them correctly that a technical theologian type will just never be able to see. And so the world is made up of theologians and of engineers, of artists, of musicians and poets. And so the wonderful thing about the scripture is, is that many times the theological precision that we glean from the scriptures, that we exegete out, comes from passages that, uh, that were literally written by poets. Look at the Psalms. The, you know, look at the Psalms. Look at the amazing prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Psalms that are written in poetical language. You know, they're literally written in these beautiful poems. And sometimes when I read through the Psalms, I go, man, I wish I, I could have known what the music was that went with that. I, would, I think it would have been, it, I, 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 one of the things I, I bemoan is, is that we've lost the music of the scriptures. We have the verse, but it would it'd be interesting to see in, in, you know, maybe in heaven when we get to that place, there I am with my platonic thinking. <laughs> the Lord will, uh, will allow us to experience, you know, the, the, the Psalm in its original form, you know, both verse and music, but the word continues even though we've lost the tunes. So, um, you know, so Logan, your point is very well taken. And that is, is that even though there's poetical stuff in the scripture and that each of us is going to view it differently, depending on some of our psychological makeup and our experience and whether or not we're precision, precise minded, mathematically oriented, or we're a poet, the truth is the truth. And we can exegete those beautiful things out of it. So anyway, wanted to bring that up. So you've done a great job. All right. Regarding the <clears throat> name, the author contest, I'm going to make it an executive decision. We're going to wait until Monday, <laughs> and the winner is uh, Tune In Monday. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of emails now. I, I tell you, we took we took Schuler and uh, Osteen off the uh, the potentials uh, authors of that article. And the name of the article is "Learn to Love Yourself." Learn to love yourself. Isn't that the problem that we have? <laughs> How can that be a solution offered by a Christian pastor? 
Yeah, the problem is we love ourselves too much. The problem is we love ourselves and no one else. We hate God and... Ay, 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 ay. All right, so um, <laughs> we're going to wait on that. And what I want to do is spend some time uh, taking uh, taking a, a re-listen to uh, Doug Paget and the things he said, and then we're going to do a little bit of biblical commentary. Just do a little bit of biblical This is not going to be extensive. We'll probably do another day of this. But I wanted to pick up on the two in particular. Is there an intermediate state, and in what is the gospel? These were these were uh, issues that I definitely wanted to discuss with Doug. And um, I told Doug at the beginning of our interview, in fact, when I called him up to do the interview, he was really nice. You know, But I've, I've had one bad conversation with Doug in the past before, and I don't really want to give all the details there because if I remind you of him of it, he might not ever want to talk to me. <laughs> it, it just didn't go well. But, um, you know, when I called him up to ask if he would be willing to do the interview, he was he was very forthright. And I told him, I said, Doug, you got to understand, you and I are worlds apart. We're not approaching, you know, these things from the same perspective at all. And I disagree with you on many things, but I really want to know what it is that you, you know, what you believe and think. And and that was the purpose of the interview. And he was all for it. So but we're going to we're going to do this out of order. We're going to start with the intermediate intermediate state or, you know, of the soul. What happens to us when we die? Now I'm not talking about your body. I'm not talking about the body as far as, you know, does it you know, we all know what happens there. You either stick it in a box 6 feet under the ground and it experiences the natural decay that occurs um to a human body. You know, goes from uh, you know this fleshy thing to eventually to dust and bones and and eventually over given long enough time the the bones disappear too but um death is generally described or understood in our western way of thinking and i put it like that just to see if i can you know as we explore the topic if if we're talking about is biblical thinking or western thinking western thinking being really culturally influenced by uh, Aristotle and Plato. We are definitely the American culture is neo neoclassical. You know, we are definitely beholden to the great thinkers of the uh, of of Greece and of Rome. You know, politically and, and philosophically. So the question is, what happens to us at death? What is the human life comprised of? And I, I'm going to give Doug some kudos in his book. Um, a Christianity worth believing, he kind of tackles the question of are human beings, you know, try, you know, are they, are they dualistic? Are there's three parts to human? Is it body, mind, and soul? Is it body, heart, and, you know, whatever? And Doug makes a case for a more holistic view of things. And just for the sake of argument, I'll say, okay, Doug, I think I agree with you in this sense, you know, is that um, I can't point to any one thing on me that, you know, I, you know, if, if you rip apart my soul, you know, from my body, then I cease to exist. I cease to be, I cease to be alive, at least in, in the understanding that we have. And so there's a, there's an important aspect of understanding that God created us with physical, you know, with literally a physical body and that, um, and that there's some type of a spirit that God has put into us that, that animates us, but that doesn't mean there's two of us. One philosopher, one apologist that I read had a great way of describing. He said that if you were in battle and you lost an arm, are you less of who you were before you had your arm blown off? 
well, no, you, not really. Or if you were to take all of your molecules, you know, can you point to which molecule within your physical body you can be found? You know, if you lose your arm, both arms, both legs, you know, you are still you, aren't you? Yeah. You know, it, it is so therefore is you is not obviously located in your arms. Where is you? <laughs> That's the question. Okay. Yeah, the, the McNugget question. Yeah, where's the McNugget? Where's the McNugget? Where's the nugget on a chicken? So the idea here is is that we've all, many of us, I shouldn't say that anymore because there's a lot of people nowadays who've never seen a dead person. There's so many of these, you know, these funerals now. You don't have open caskets anymore. It's just, just fallen from vogue. But for those of us who've seen dead people, it's really weird. It looks like they're just sleeping there, you know? They're there. They're not there. I mean, the body that you are so familiar with of your loved one, your family, your friend, you know, I mean, but where did they go? What is death? Death is really the ripping apart of the body and the soul. So the question is, is that, uh, it, you know, what's platonic thinking? Well, is that really the right way? Of, you know, is this it, many Christians have a misguided perception that the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. That's, you know, that kind of that Gnostic notion. And that really is Gnosticism. But uh, Christianity teaches, you know, the human the human person is a whole person who com is comprised of many different parts and we don't count up all of our parts you know my liver my heart my spleen you know my pancreas you know it, you don't count up your parts of your body that way and it doesn't make any sense to count up you know to count things up you know as far as body and soul that's kind of an interesting distinction and the only reason why we're really painfully aware of, of the separation of the body and soul is because of death and death is the wage of sin so anyway, with that in mind, kind of you know, starting off there, what I want to do is play what Doug said regarding Platonism and then go into the scriptures and see what the Bible teaches regarding an intermediate state. We're just going to do some comparative work. Did, you know, did Doug get it right? Is he giving us an accurate understanding of what the scriptures teach? And so uh, what we'll do here is we'll pull up, uh, pull up Doug's interview and uh, we'll, we'll get this started here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. It would help if I had selected the right day. Now, oh, see, there he goes. I'm getting old. I can't be doing my own engineering anymore. You guys got to take this away from me. <laughs> Don't worry, you live listeners. You're the ones who get to experience this, but nobody else will because I'm too embarrassed and I'll have to... <laughs> You edit it out. All right, so here, here's Doug Paget uh, discussing Platonism and dualism in Christianity and, and what, uh, what we said. But what I, what I was trying to argue was that uh, the, the Jesus narrative that we read is deeply rooted in an Old Testament vision and in an Isaiah the prophet. You know, like Jesus functions in this Isaiah the prophet-like role. So he quotes Isaiah a lot. He opens the scroll the way Luke tells it in the synagogue and find the part where as it says in Isaiah, um, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so he's taking on an Isaiah-like like, um, uh, a mantle. And so it's functioning that way inside of Jewish community. And within a few hundred years, 
there's a different set of questions being faced by Christian people. Mm-hmm. In, that, in the early centuries, the question was, what's God's participation in the world for, for Jesus? To Greek thinking people, and I, I go sort of broad, and I, I guarantee you I've gotten emails from people who are Greeks, and they tell me that's not just Greeks. <laughs> like, okay, so I get But in the broad sense of things, Gentiles, to use Paul's kind of language, the Greeks and the, and the Hebrews, the, mm-hmm. the Gentiles, had a different cultural orientation around um, uh, the, 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 the functionality of human beings and God. And so I try to argue that some of the reason why we've ended up with a kind of Christianity that ends up being um, dualistic, meaning separating spirit from body to such a degree that we have in Christianity today, can be taken back to when Christianity made a move to not only make sense to the Hebrews, but to also make sense to the Gentiles and the Greeks. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. Just ask the question, is our understanding of death in an intermediate state something that crept in because of Greek influence and Greek thinking, or is that something that was brought out from the scriptures? That's really what it comes down to. It was Christianity culturally impacted by Greek platonic thinking and dualistic ideas regarding life and death, or does the Bible teach that does did the Holy Spirit inspire the authors of Scripture in such a way that they communicate accurately to us a dualistic way of thinking in the sense that when we die we depart and we go to be with the Lord, or is that just a Greek Western misinterpretation of what Paul said? That's really the question here. So let's continue to listen to Doug. Okay, the Gentiles and the Greeks had a very complicated set of issues. I in the book, sort of grab all those together into one little bag and call it Greek thought and, you know, stick a couple of names in the telling of this story so people would, you know, click into somewhere in their, in their you know, maybe in the world civ, civ class mm-hmm. and could sort of recall some of this. So it's accurate, but it's not meant to be a precise reading of the distinction between Aristotelian dualism and Platonic dualism. Okay, so... I'm not doing that. Now, there's some people, those pyromaniac kids over there, they're just big into that because they're proud to be Platonists, you know, and they're pl- proud to be Arist- Aristotelian. And, you know, I'm like, good for... Okay, I'm going to stop there. I don't think the guys over at Pyromaniacs, that's, uh, I think, Phil Miller and his, and his buddies, uh, I don't think that they revel in being Platonists. Okay, and there is really a huge difference between Platonic thought and Aristotelian thought. These are two different theological, uh, not theological, philosophical streams. Um, Generally, Platonists do not consider themselves to be Aristotelian, and Aristotelian people do not consider themselves to be Platonists. Just as a theological, who cares? Uh, C.S. Lewis was a Platonist, no doubt about it. He makes no bones about it. He's a very, he's a huge fan of Plato. Um, Ayn Rand, she's not a Christian, Ayn Rand in her way of thinking, her objectivist philosophy is Aristotelian. So, you know, two completely different worlds. Um, so he kind of lumped the two together. I just have to point that out that, uh, lumping the two together doesn't make any sense, uh, philosophically. For you, but your version, it doesn't work for most people in the world. Okay. Your, your version, it's the problem to many of us, not the help. So... So we kind of bicker back and forth, and they must have a lot of time on their hands because they make little posters. I, <laughs> anyway, that's 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 where I was going. With. Okay, I, I I get it. So um the so basically, 
you make the claim that this this sharp dualism that exists is this idea that the matter and the flesh is somehow evil and bad and the spirit is good, which you identify as a Gnostic notion, not a Christian notion. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and you believe that this dualistic thinking, it still permeates uh, the church and, and the Christian community. And uh, and so when it, whenever you call somebody a Platonist, you're trying to point out the fact that they're engaging in some kind of a, of a dualism that uh, that isn't really necessarily biblical. Yeah. Well, I, but I, you know, honest to goodness, I don't know that I've ever called somebody a Platonist. I had one conversation with a guy named Todd Frio where he was trying to ask me about heaven as a place, uh-huh. and I said, Todd, it sounds to me like you're using whole categories that aren't of interest to me. Okay, got to stop. That's an interesting p- comment that that Doug makes. In fact, one of my critiques of Doug and his his ideas is that somehow what's interesting to him or categories that are interesting to him, because he's not modern, he's postmodern, um, that somehow that you know, you know, Todd Friel is guilty of discussing categories that are not interesting to Doug, that's kind of that's a narcissistic approach to uh, to looking at truth. Whether whether or not you're postmodern, pre-modern, uh, modern, you know, or something else medieval in your thinking, if you would. Um, whether or not the category is interesting to you or not doesn't really matter. What matters is is that is are, are the categories that somebody's operating in, the truth that they're trying to express, is it true or is it false? And what's your authority for deciding what's true and false? Is the authority that you're deciding what's true and false based upon Scripture, your opinions, uh, is some kind of special revelation that you're receiving from Martians that uh, that are living just outside the rings of Saturn. You know, what, what, how are you deciding what's true? So whether or not something's interesting to you, that's kind of not the point. And so, to, you know, the question, you know, the question, one of the things that's brought up now that Doug has brought up is having a place. Is having a place. What are we talking about there? But before I answer, let's continue. You're using categories of heaven as a place rather than a reality, and I just don't. That 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 comes from a particular Greek orientation. That now does it? Does that come from a particular Greek orientation, or is that what the Bible teaches? That's really the question here. You know, and we don't need to get snarky and nasty with Doug Paget. It's just a matter of okay. Doug is making the claim that heaven isn't a place; that heaven's a reality. Doug is making the claim that heaven isn't a place. And that the idea that heaven is a place comes from Greek thinking, not from biblical thinking. And he claims that he reads the Bible accurately. Well, does he? That's what's important. So before we can, before we answer, let's let's play this out. There is a location, and this gets complicated. But he brought up complicated issues, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it, to most people's minds, you know, Grandma went to a place. But then they you ask them for a minute, what kind of place does a soul go to? Mm-hmm. You know, like. Is there a boundary to it? Is there a wall? And you know, and see, people know that that's not how it how it really goes. They just use that as the, the quick and the shorthand. Mm-hmm. And then some people actually believe that they actually believe that the soul will be will be separated from the body and will live on in a soul existence. And I think that that's as close to Platonic dualism as you get. And I think guys like Todd hold to that. Mm-hmm. And it's shocking to me because we are resurrection people. What we hold to is the resurrection of the body. Okay, now, got to point this out. Doug is absolutely right, okay? Uh, and this critique is not without merit. 
Okay, and the the problem here is is that many people seem to think that Christians, when they die, are going to be given a harp, be given a white robe that will somehow sprout wings, and that we'll be living in this soul existence in heaven, disembodied forever and ever as spirits. That could not be further from the truth if that if you tried. That is not what the Bible teaches. And Doug is right that the Christian hope is in the hope of the resurrection. Okay, but the question I have here is, has Doug swung too hard to the side of the resurrection that he's missing an important fact? And that is, is that Christ hasn't returned yet. We have not experienced the resurrection yet. And do we continue to exist now? If you were to die tonight, you know, those of you commuting home and listening to this podcast, if you were to get into an auto accident and you were to die, you know, what happens to you until the time when Jesus Christ comes back in glory to judge both the living and the dead? That's the question. But before we can get into it, we're going to have to take a break. <laughs> I'm going to leave you guys hanging. That's because that's what I do. So uh, if, you, uh, if you would like to email me about what you're hearing so far, you can do so. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back. By the way, we've got a brand new Marty Python's Flying Circus Church sketch that we'll be playing here in just a minute. So don't go away. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. We're in the middle of listening to and critiquing, biblically doing some biblical comparison between what Doug Paget said in our interview with him earlier this week and what the Bible says. But before we get back into the Doug Paget interview, we have a brand new Marty Python Flying Circus Church sketch that we've got to play for you guys. This one's uh, inspired by uh, the pastor from Guts Church. We're referring to him as uh, Pastor Rex Quando. So that was the. Uh, this one's dedicated to Pastor Rex Quando from Guts Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Here we go. It's. 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. There we go. The latest from Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. <laughs> oh, man. What am I? What, how is it that this is my job? <laughs> okay. Now, we were talking, we were listening to a Doug Paget's interview and, uh, you know, talking about Platonism. And I'm going to back the tape up just a little bit to make sure we got this in context because I want to get the last couple of bits of what he said here. And he's talking about the difference between Platonic thought, Platonic dualism, and we're discussing the uh, an intermediate state. What happens to you when you die? Does your soul go to be with the Lord? What happens? Well, what's Doug's answer? Let's let's uh, let's catch up with Doug again here. People actually believe that they actually believe that the soul will be will be separated from the body and will live on in a soul existence. And I think that that's as close to platonic dualism as you get. And I think guys like Todd hold to that. And it's shocking to me because we are resurrection people. What we hold to is the resurrection of the body, not the, not the de- departure of the soul from the body. Well, let me... And I know that, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, like, these people all think that people like me don't care about the Bible, you know? Uh-huh. I, I do care about the Bible. And what I'm going to continue to proclaim is the resurrection, not the separation of the soul, which will then will be freed from its pains of this, you know, mortal body. Oh. Now, the problem is that in certain parts of the Bible, you hear that very kind of language. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, anybody who studied the writings of Paul knows that Paul bounced back and forth and somehow in his head held these two things together in a way that, you know, uh, I haven't been able to wrap, wrap my head around. So, and I don't think he's expecting me to. I think he's, you know, he wasn't thinking about me in the, in the, uh. I've got to pause there for a second. I want to point something out here. This goes back to uh, one of the earlier emails that I read. There's a bifurcation that's occurring here. 
Yes, we Christians hold to the resurrection. Our hope is to be resurrected. That's really our hope. Okay? When Christ comes back, we will be resurrected. That means our eternal existence will occur bodily. Resurrection bodies. Okay? And God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, you're going to be able to taste, you know, wine, bread. You'll be able to smell, taste, touch, feel. Okay, so our ultimate hope is in a resurrection. The question is, is it a bifurcated way of thinking, a dualistic way of thinking to think that somehow you're going, you know, that the soul separates from the body at death and until the resurrection, we will be with the Lord in heaven in a spirit state. That's the question. Okay, let's continue with the rest of this, and then we'll we'll critique it biblically. Well, I mean, definitely the Bible's not about you, Doug. So. The Bible's what? <laughs> it's not about you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, well, Paul did did say, you know, I, my question is, do you believe in an intermediate state? You know, Paul said to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Yeah. I mean, uh, but tr- I think what Paul's getting okay, now, pay real close attention to how he's he's going to use this passage, okay? Because I'm going to I'm going to make the claim that Doug is not accurately handling this text, and I'll give my reasons for it in a minute. But listen carefully. Getting at there, I think Paul would also say to be in the bodies to be present with the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's not what the text says, but that's okay. We'll continue. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's saying that in the body you're not present with the Lord. After the body, you are present with the Lord. No, I, I think I, what he's trying to say is it doesn't matter if you're in the body or out of the body. I think his argument there is to say you know, all these questions that we all have about how all this stuff works, here's what we know. You're going to be present with God. That's the good news, right? He's not trying to sit, make some statement about the the ordering of of intermittent afterlife stages. Mm-hmm. It's just holy moly! If that's what he's getting at in the middle of writing, the, you know, this this epistle, this this encouragement, this blessing to these people, and, and that's what he's getting at. Is he really now? He wants to pause for a minute and make a statement about the the nature of cosmology as it relates to the human soul. No, no he's not. And so when someone does it, with takes those passages and creates that, that's fine. They can say, this is my source material, and now it's me talking. But they don't get to say, the Apostle Paul says such and such, if that isn't what he said. Well, then here's my question for you, Doug. If uh... All right, we're going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to respond biblically. He made the claim that Paul's argument from Philippians was not just that he would be, if he's absent with the body, he would be present with the Lord. But that to be present in the body is to also be present with the Lord. Let's look at the text. Okay. Okay. We're in Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. I'm going to read all the way to 26 so that we get this in context. Okay. Uh, He says, Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by death or by life. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire 
is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So when we read the text, okay, Doug made the claim that his argument was to be present with the body, in the body was also to be present with the Lord. That's not what Paul's saying. Let me read this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. So listening to Paul's letter. And yes, this is a letter. There's also great truth in here. Truth that is undeniable. He's speaking from an understanding and an, you know, and he's debating within his own mind. What shall he choose? Shall he remain in the flesh? Or, he says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. If Doug was correctly handling this passage and accurately exegeting it and telling us what it meant, then he wouldn't be saying that... Paul was arguing that to be present in the body is also to be present with the Lord because here Paul is claiming that it would be better for him, better for him to depart and to be with Christ. That that his expectation here is that death will bring him face to face with Christ and that the veil will be lifted, if you would, okay? To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So I would say, if we just open up our Bibles and compare what Doug is saying uh, to the Bible, then um, I don't think he's accurately conveying what Paul was teaching and what Paul was saying in this in this letter. Now, there's other passages that we can bring to bear. Okay, this is a good, clear one: to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to to live is Christ, to die is gain. Okay, that's one passage. Um, there's other passages that we can bring. One is from uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. And here's what it says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. What is Paul referring to? Here the word sleep is being, is a euphemism for death. Okay, So you can literally say, verse 13, we don't want you brothers, you fellow Christians, to be uninformed about those who are dead, that you do not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, the dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this is interesting. Okay, Doug is talking about our hope in the resurrection, and this passage deals directly with the day on which the dead will rise, the day of the resurrection. The day of the resurrection is the day that the Lord returns. And notice if you look at the passage, that it says that Jesus himself will descend from heaven. It's Paul here speaking about heaven as if it's a place. Is he not? So if you read the passage and understand in this letter, Paul is specifically giving information, very specific propositional truth claims regarding what's going to happen on the last day. And this is specifically designed to be a comfort and a blessing to the people who he's writing this to, the, the people in the churches in Thessalonia, Thessal- Thessaloniki. <laughs> I, I said that one for my wife. <laughs> so Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are who've died. Okay. We declare that that basically Jesus here. Paul is saying that that when Christ returns, he's bringing the dead with him. He's bringing the dead with him. So now, let me let me give you another passage, another way of thinking when it comes to an intermediate state. These two passages from uh, from Philippians chapter one, First Thessalonians four, make it really clear that there is some kind of an intermediate state. Okay. But there's other passages that we can bring to bear. And what I'd like to do is just take a look at um, Jesus' transfiguration. You're familiar with the story. It's recorded in three of the Gospels. And uh, Matthew 17 is the is the Gospel I'm going to read this from. And I, wa- I want to read this to you. Matthew se- chapter 17, starting at verse 1, it says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he, that's Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay? This is an interesting passage. Here we've got Jesus literally letting his glory shine out. Okay? He's transfigured before their eyes. And... What happens is, is that he is now having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Simple question. How is this possible? Well, if there is no intermediate state, there is no intermediate state, then this has to be just some kind of a, of a, of a vision, some kind of a tricky thing that's going on here. It wasn't really Moses and Elijah. It was just some vision of them. Okay, But I don't think that's what the text is really doing here. Because it says that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. Well, how is that possible? Well, if there's an intermediate state prior to the resurrection, then Moses and Elijah, they live somewhere. They exist somewhere. Where is that? Well, we would say heaven, where the Lord lives. Okay, where the angels exist. Angels don't have bodies, yet we don't have any problem believing that angels live in heaven, right? Same thing. 
So Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, we will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. That's normally what happens when human beings encounter the holy. They're terrified. All right, so, um, no, yeah. You know what's always funny to me? When I was at the Reveal Conference, I, we're going to put this montage together. I, I, We've got to do this. They interviewed a bunch of different pastors who were apparently getting it right at the Reveal Conference, and over and over and over again, these guys were getting direct revelation from God. God told me to do this, and God told me to do that, and God told me to do this, and, and the Spirit spoke to my heart and said this. And my question was, how come whenever God's speaking to these people, he's, he's always affirming something, but he's never saying something like, you worm, I'm going to kill you, you sinner. <laughs> You're not reading it right. Yeah. <laughs> no, God's always affirming whatever they're doing. Yeah, he never, never, never does God speak to them in judgment or whatever. It's really funny. Who was I reading? Oh, I forget now who it was. It was a good essay. Maybe it was part of a book about how um, after, you know, at, at, after 9-11, you know, there was some radical preachers who were out there saying that that 9-11 was God's judgment on America. OK, now here's the deal completely within the realm of possibility. OK, completely within the realm of possibility. And I could say speak definitively and say the United States of America collectively has earned the wrath of God. <laughs> okay? And if you don't believe me, uh, email me. would love to talk to you about that. Okay? So, okay, it's p- completely within the realm of possibility that, that you know, God was, was judging the United States through the attacks that occurred at 9-11. Completely possible. But here's the deal. That guy, those preachers were pretty much shot down, you know, the day after the attacks. And you remember you know, after the attacks, I mean, we were singing God bless America everywhere. Okay. And the, the I think it was Horton who wrote this. It was in an article he wrote. And, and here's, here was the question. This is, why do we believe in a God who would bless us, but not a God who would ever judge us? And I thought that was a, that, wow, that was a good question. Great question. I'm off on a tangent. <laughs> oh, man, I love it when I bunny trail myself. Okay, there's one more passage I want to bring up when talking about this intermediate state. Now, in, in the Gospel of Mark, okay, the, the uh, Sadducees come to test Jesus, and they ask him a question about a guy who was married to a woman, and the guy dies, and the woman marries his brother, and he dies, and then and and so she she marries his other brother and he dies and it goes on and on to like you know he's this poor woman she's had seven brothers now that she's married because that's culturally what would happen and so the question was to Jesus and this was a question that was supposed to trip everybody up regarding the resurrection which the Pharisees didn't believe in okay and and so they asked Jesus well who at the resurrection of the dead who is she married to and you know Jesus basically <laughs> Oh man, he brutalizes them with his answer, and um, he basically said, "You know, the dead are neither given in you know are like the angels; they're not given in marriage." And and then he says, "And as for the dead being raised, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses? This is the Torah, in the passage about the bush, 
how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and I am the God of Jacob. Okay. This is so Jesus here is referring back to the opening chapters of Genesis, not Genesis. I'm sorry. Exodus opening chapters of Exodus where God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush and God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite mistaken. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> so what's interesting here is, is that kind of kills two birds with one stone. God reveals himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. So if God is the God of the living, then that would make sense as to why we would see Moses and Elijah showing up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Why? Because Moses and Elijah are still alive. How is that possible? Their bodies have long since decayed. Because they're with God right now in an intermediate state, awaiting the resurrection of the dead. That's how Paul took the two and kept held them in his mind. Doug, that's the answer to the question. And I think that's the accurate way of looking at the scriptures. Don't you? Anyway, that's going <laughs> to... You know, that's what the problem is. It's, I'm just a closed-minded Lutheran. See, that's my problem. See, if I was just an open-minded emergent and interested in the conversation and the journey instead of the destination, then, yeah. Anyway. I know, I know. I took way too long on that. <laughs> I'm looking at the time going, Roseboro, how is it possible that you can blab on like that for so long? Oh, man. So... <laughs> We're going to take another break, and uh, when we come back from the break, I actually uh, we're going to switch from Doug Padgett to John Ortberg. We'll have to pick up more Doug Padgett stuff on another program. I want to come back to John Ortberg, and uh, we'll, we'll be talking about what I heard at the Reveal Now conference. I want to continue on. We left off yesterday, kind of about almost nine minutes into his presentation, and there's more that we got to talk about, more that we got to discuss. And so, you know, we'll do it that way. But um, if you would like to email me about the intermediate state, do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And we will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases 
can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right. We are back, and you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I like that bumper music. That's some mean air guitar you got going on there, Josh. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's Friday. On a Friday, uh, we get Josh back. Yeah, Josh is going to be leaving for the Navy for boot camp in January. And uh, he's currently in college. He's getting edumacated. Yeah, so he has Fridays off, so he comes in and, and helps us with our creative stuff. All right, we're going to listen to... A little more of John Ortberg from the Reveal Conference. And what we're going to focus, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. I'll play uh, a few minutes uh, previous to where we left off. But the reason I'm playing this is because I want you guys to hear what is being promoted at the Reveal Now Conference and this concept of the difference between a Christian and a Christ follower. I'm sorry, I'm going to basically make this claim. The people who are using the term Christ follower, they're trying to distinguish themselves from Christians, and the distinctions that they're drawing are not only they're not only not biblical, it's a confusion of law and gospel. And I my big concern is is that Christ follower is code talk for the neopietism. It's a new form of pietism. And pietism is the kind of stuff that will um leave you empty and turn your children into atheists. I kid you not. I'm not overstating my case there. This is the kind of stuff that will drive you absolutely bonkers and get you out of the faith because it's all based upon the law. So uh, we'll be uh, we'll be talking about this as we uh, listen more to, uh, to John Ortberg's plenary from the uh, Reveal Conference. So with, without any further ado, let me uh, fast forward the, uh, the soundbite here so that uh, we can listen to our good friend John Orberg. We'll kind of pick it up in the middle of his thoughts here. Life, his financial life or security or something, that's where he drew the line. There is in the New Testament a kind of a natural progression as people are coming to know Jesus. They begin as strangers to him. And then from strangers... They become admirers. And then from admirers, they may become followers. And of course, at each one of those points, people may decide that they're not going to go any further. Pilate does not become an admirer. Herod does not become an admirer. Rich young ruler does not become a follower. But I think what has happened in churches, especially in America in our day, is that we have added an additional category, and that category is 
users of Jesus. Okay, now we never put it that way. But in many, many, many people's mind, there is a kind of an alternative relationship with Jesus that kind of goes like this. I want to use Jesus to get into heaven when I die. And there's a deep problem with the gospel and the way that it has been presented because for many, many people, the gospel has become the proclamation of the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Now again, we never put it that way. But it'll go something like this. How do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die? And of course, there's little, if any, discussion about what kind of community heaven might be and what kind of person might I need to be to actually enjoy being in heaven. It's just thought of in this cartoon way as kind of the pleasure factory and hell is kind of the torture chamber. And how do you know you're going to get into the pleasure factory? Because God's going to get people out. And the gospel is, you've been trying to earn your way in, so don't do that anymore. Get on the grace plan. Believe the right stuff about an arrangement that has been made for you, and then you have obeyed the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Got to stop. Yeah, this is just crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. I mean, how... I mean, uh, he doesn't understand what faith is. Faith is not something, the thing that you do in order to meet the minimum requirements to get into heaven. And here's the deal. Jesus Christ himself wants us to use him. I am definitely a user of Jesus. Because I'll tell you this. If me being saved is somehow dependent even in part on me, I am lost, gone, out of here. I mean, hell, I better start getting comfortable with really hot places and fire and things like that because um, I'm gone without Christ. If I, if I have to do this myself, you know. But the other part that's really interesting here is, is that Ortberg doesn't understand really what saving faith is he doesn't get it he doesn't get it because as luther said faith alone saves but saving faith is never alone that's the thing good works flow from faith as a fruit of faith and so he's putting this false dichotomy in but then the next question immediately is what is a good work okay this guy is defining some kind of a commitment level as is as what it means to be a disciple. And you're just an acquaintance at this commitment level, but until you get to this commitment level, you're not really a disciple. And the high commitment level means I'll do whatever it takes, Jesus. Is that what scripture says? That unless you achieve a particular commitment level, that you're not really a disciple? You'd be hard-pressed to find that in the Scriptures. Hard-pressed. Scriptures are in agreement. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Or as James says, just as the body is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is truly dead. It's not a level of commitment. Faith can't help but produce good works. And what is a good work? Folks, you Christians out there listening to me, when you got up this morning and dressed up in your business casual or put on a uniform or got up, changed diapers, dressed your kids for school, sent them off, worked in the kitchen, preparing a meal, 
when you went out to serve your neighbor today in the vocation that God has put you into, whether that is policeman, firefighter, CEO, cubicle dweller, mom, dad, hospice worker, all of that is a good work. What you do on a day-to-day basis to serve your neighbor is a good work. These guys don't see it as that. It's somehow I've got to, I've got to be willing to let God take over my plans so that I don't go to. If I've if I've been accepted to Harvard, the important thing to do is to not go. If I want to study law and become an attorney and climb the ranks and be the best attorney that I can be, that somehow that's selfish and that's wrong. And what you need to do is you need to be willing to lay aside whatever plans that you have for your career and be willing to what? Go dig wells in Africa? Some are called to do that. That's a good work, truly. But I tell you this, I thank God for my attorney. I thank God that I have an attorney who's good at being an attorney. He serves me well by being the best attorney that he can be. And I hope to God that he is desiring to be the best attorney and to climb the ranks in his partnership and to be the best attorney that he can be. I don't see a dichotomy there between God's plan for his life and his career. That dichotomy does not really exist, not biblically. Let's continue. And then you become a user of Jesus. Then, of course, there's no intrinsic connection then to being a disciple, to being a follower. Talking in this session about is your church producing followers of Jesus, disciples, or just Christians, commonly understood? A Christian, as commonly understood, I think, is somebody who identifies with a religious subculture, so, you know, this is our team, and then the Buddhists are another team, and the Muslims are another team, and we like it when more people join our team. It's somebody who believes they're going to heaven when they die because they accepted an arrangement to get them in. But discipleship, making a serious intention to obey everything Jesus said, making a serious intention to do what Jesus said to do... Hold on a second. This is where the rubber meets the road. Let me back this up, and you got to hear it again. I'll stop it at the right place. Here we go. But discipleship, making a serious intention to obey everything Jesus said, making a serious intention to do what Jesus said to do, is treated as largely an option. No, I'm sorry. That's a misunderstanding of the law. John, you don't obey Christ. You don't. None of us do. If my discipleship is based upon my intention to obey Christ, then my whether or not I'm a disciple is based upon my law-keeping. kind of extra credit. And churches are full of this kind of Christian 
And then church leaders who spend a lot of time trying to re-motivate or re-excite them so that the church can be successful. Define a successful church, John. A successful church would be a church where the, where the believers gather to be fed God's word in accordance with the gospel and to receive his sacraments in accordance with the gospel. That's a successful church. Now, about this arrangement regarding getting into heaven, I want to read something here. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3, until I decide to stop. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Peter writing. One of the first Christians, by the way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. <laughs> Remember yesterday I was talking about being born again? Well, here it is again. And who is it that caused us to be born again? God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There we go again. I guess heaven's a place because our inheritance is being kept in heaven for us, right? Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, the perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you have loved him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Apparently, the Apostle Peter was the kind of Christian that John Ortberg is slamming. Because he accepted the arrangement that was made, that was achieved by Christ. Right? Hmm. We continue. And it gets tiring for everybody. It is interesting, I think, that the New Testament uses the word Christian only twice. And um, it actually originated as kind of a derisive nickname. It uses the word disciple 268 times. False dichotomy. All Christians are disciples. Period. There is no distinction in Scripture. Everybody who is a disciple is a Christian. Everybody who is a Christian is a disciple. The two terms are synonymous. It's a lot easier to make a Christian commonly understood. But the New Testament is a book about disciples. And I want to locate the difference a little more precisely when we talk about disciples. Um, I think what I'd like to ask you to do, if you don't mind, just for about 10 seconds or so, because I want to talk about what kind of faith characterizes a disciple. Turn to the person next to you. There's a phrase that we use in the church, saving faith. There's a phrase, saving faith. 
How would you define that term, saving faith? Would you turn to the person next to you for just a moment? Just take 10 or 20 seconds. How do you understand the phrase saving faith? So everyone's going to uh, discuss and share. There are multiple plethoras of definitions. And John Ortberg is now going to clear us, clearly teach us as to why there's something wrong with this concept. Discuss. The Civil War was neither civil nor war. Discuss. Discuss. All right. Uh, hold that thought in mind, and we'll come back to that in a couple moments. Uh, when we talk about faith, one of the things that has troubled me a lot is, how can two people affirm the same beliefs, you know, recite the Apostles' Creed or whatever together, believe the same stuff, and yet one of them is loving and courageous and truthful and generous and winsome, and the other one, and everybody kind of knows, is unloving, severe, judgmental, kind of greedy, arrogant. Yeah, that's me, I guess, yeah. Severe, judgmental, and greedy. Yeah, so how, I mean, how is that possible? Could it be that we're all sinners? Hello? <laughs> Slacker. Man, the answer to your question, John, is we are all sinners, including you. And it doesn't matter how kind and courageous and winsome you think you are. You are just as sinful as the guy you just judged. Yeah. Oh, man. See, that's the thing. Folks, if you think Christianity is about your moral improvement and that somehow you've climbed the ladder and that you've achieved a greater degree of commitment to Jesus because you're holier now than, than that sinner over there, you don't get it. The purpose of the law is to show you your sin. And I can tell you, I am probably a worse sinner than John Ortberg. Probably. But you know what? I'm no more righteous than anybody else. I'll tell you that. The one thing I do when I see, when I look into the mirror of God's law, the reflection that comes back always, always, always is sinner. And the good works I produce, they seem so feeble. So, so fragile. So fraught with sin. Even my best works. And you know what? If you're honest and you look into the mirror of God's law honestly, the reflection that will come back will tell you that you are a sinner too. The reason why there's these differences is because we're all sinners. And each of us has our own different set of pet sins that we participate in and that we enjoy. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us through his word and through the sacraments, through the gospel. And to conform us into the image of Christ, the renewing of our minds that occurs in when, when we're engaged with God's word. And some people have been on this earth a lot longer as Christians and some haven't. Some are newborns and they still have all of the, you know, the bad habits of somebody who just came into Christianity. And yet there are some who, even though they've been Christian for 50 years... They still feed bad habits just like the other guy. They just have are better at hiding it and playing the game. 
The reality is we're all sinners, sinners in need of a Savior. And no amount of pulling yourself up by your bootstrap or trying harder or go to the next level of commitment is going to save you, nor is it really going to sanctify you. And yet they would both say that they believe the same things. How does that happen? Well, to get into that, I want to talk about three different forms of faith or three different kinds of conviction. This is part of what I get into in Faith and Doubt. And it's a little tricky to teach out. So if I lose you at all in this talk, I will lose you in the next five minutes. So everybody stay with me for the next five minutes, okay? Everybody stay with me for the next five minutes, okay? Okay. Three different kind of convictions or um, flavors of faith, things that people believe. The first one... Uh, involves what might be called public convictions. These are things that I say because I want to get you to think I believe them, whether or not I actually really believe them. Kind of PR statements. So somebody really close to me asks, does this dress make my hips look too big? And the correct response is, no, I had no idea that you even had hips until you raised it right now. Okay? Public convictions. We associate this kind of stuff often with... um, Politicians, biblical example would be Herod. When the Magi come and they tell him that they're going to go find the, the Messiah who's now been born, and he says, when you find him, come tell me so that I can go worship him with you. Now, I want to point something out to here. Ortberg is saying that the, these are three different types of faith. Oh, is that wrong right off? Now, you, you can judge this right on its face. Faith, Greek word, the verb form of it, pistuo, means to trust. Belief, built off the same Greek word, the noun form, um, you know, it, 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 it's it's the same thing. Pistis, okay? Belief, trust. Public convictions are not a form of faith. The way he's defining them, that's not faith. Saying, you know, what a politician says, you know, to saying something that this is called a lie, okay? A public conviction that you don't really believe, that's called a lie, okay? That's a sin. Thou shalt not bear false witness, the Ten Commandments say. So a public conviction is not a form of faith. It's a lie, okay? And the, the nice way of putting it is, is that somebody is spinning something, Right? It's, a, it's called a lie. A lie is not a form of faith. You're wrong, John. This is not a form of faith. Now, did Herod really want to go worship that baby? No, that's a public conviction. Okay. No, it's a lie. Okay. Then the second kind, and this is where things get quite interesting. There are what might be called private convictions. These are things that I actually think I do believe. I'm actually pretty sincere internally about these beliefs. However, it turns out when circumstances change, when my situation is different, it may turn out I didn't actually believe this conviction at all. It was not really firm. For example, let's say that there is somebody who believes that they are deeply attracted to another person as long as that other person is not available, as long as that other person is committed to somebody else. And this person believes they really want to be with that person, long as they're unavailable. And then one day when that other person becomes available, when that other person is now um, open to a relationship, in fact, eager to a, for a relationship, 
This person discovers that they are not really interested in that other person at all. Well, maybe they realize that girl has bad breath or something. <laughs> you know, well, private conviction. This isn't a form of faith either. Okay? It, it just might be that, you know, I really thought that chick was really hot, and, but she was dating my buddy Fred. And now that she's broken up with him and I've actually had a conversation with her, I realize that there isn't a brain cell rolling around in her brain, you know, and that she's she's not that bright and we're just not a match. That's what we call learning. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, so, so far we're, we're striking out here on two different types of faith. Public convictions are not, is not faith. That's a lie. Private convictions could just be a mistake or as soon as you get more information you learn that you were wrong oh yeah yeah or you changed your mind right you know uh, uh, they got commitment issues and in our society there really are such people and we call them men okay (laughs) so speak for yourself john I've been married to my wife for 20 years. I don't think I have commitment issues. As a private conviction, I think I believe it. Um, Biblical example of this one would be Peter, when Jesus is going to go to the cross, and he calls his disciples to him. He says, you're all going to run away from me. And Peter says, no, Lord, I would never do that. Even if everybody else deserves you, I will stand with you to the death. Now, when Peter said that, in that moment, was Peter sincere? Yes, he was sincere. Was that conviction authentically true? No, it was not. Okay, so Peter denied Christ. He, And by the way, this doesn't really count as a private conviction because what Peter said was public, otherwise you wouldn't know about it. Um, okay, so Peter, when push came to shove, he denied Christ. He sinned. Was his private conviction a form of faith? Or did his actions show... His lack of faith. You see what I'm saying here? The way he set this up, that these are different forms of, these are different levels of commitment or different levels of faith. I'm sorry, but I'm not seeing this panning out yet in reality. It did not stick. When his circumstances changed, he found out reality. Okay? So, there are public convictions, things that I say I believe, private convictions, things I think I believe. Turns out, I may not even be the best judge of what I actually believe, because the third form of convictions are what might be called core convictions. And these are the things that I demonstrate that I believe by what it is that I actually do. Because the idea here is, everybody has a kind of mental map about the way that things really are. We have ideas about the way that reality really works. And you live at the mercy of those ideas, whether you want to or not. Now, this is where it gets really easy to shoot this down. Okay? He's addressed something that, okay, let's grant him his argument. I'm going to say, okay, core convictions are those things that really I truly believe and it plays out in my actions. Now, if you're going to define a Christian disciple based upon as somebody who's core, you know, as somebody who has core convictions that play out in their life, and it's based upon obedience to Jesus Christ, because that's what John has made the case for already, then here's the deal. 
none of us really, really believes in Jesus Christ. Not one of us. You, me, John Ortberg, Bill Hybels, Greg Hawkins, anybody. Why? Not even the Apostle Paul. Because we all still sin. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Man, I don't love you then, Jesus, because I know what the Ten Commandments are, and I don't keep them on a daily basis. If my discipleship is dependent upon obedience, if your discipleship is is dependent upon obedience to Christ, then you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ because you do not keep the commandments perfectly. If you really loved God, then you wouldn't be sinning, would you? But what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 7? The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? But see, that's Romans chapter 7. And the story doesn't end in Romans chapter 7. Romans 8 comes after Romans 7. And here's what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You see, Christianity is about belief. It's about trust and that faith and that trust produces good fruit But the thing is, is that here in this life, we are simultaneously justified before God and we are still sinful. This scheme that Ortberg is proposing, defining discipleship based upon obedience, will drive you to insanity, suicide, turn you into a Pharisee, or drive you to become an atheist. Because the Apostle Paul didn't even live out according to his core convictions. The things he didn't want to do are the things that he did. And so do you. Christianity says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law for you. Use Jesus. You should be a user of Jesus. That's what we should call ourselves. I'm a Jesus user and proud of it. Let's continue. And I don't have to drum up a sense of uh, fervor about them. I just believe in the law of gravity. So I don't have to say, today I'm going to work really hard not to jump off a high building or a ledge or something like that. Because I just believe that that's true. And so I won't step off that unless I want to hurt myself. Your behavior is always a function of your purposes and your core convictions about how things are. Yep, and that's why you don't really believe in Jesus, John, because you sin every day. 
If that's the definition that you come up with, that you're working from, you do not really love Christ because you disobey him daily. And you cannot violate those. But you do. That's the problem. Public convictions, these are things I say I believe. I have private convictions. These are things I think I believe. But then I have core convictions, and these are things that I show that I actually believe by what it is I really do. My public convictions may be bogus. My private convictions may be fickle. But I never violate my core convictions about the way things really are. All right, if that's true, then you, John, do not love Christ. Because if you define discipleship based upon obedience, you don't truly love Jesus and you're not a disciple because you sin every day. Now, Jesus comes along. Like any great teacher, what is he interested in changing in people? Public convictions, private convictions, or core convictions? Bogus question. Core convictions. Because we live out of this, see? We don't even have to try to live out of this. We just always live in a way that reflects this. Actually, Jesus came that we might believe in him. That belief, that faith, that trust is a gift from God. And it automatically produces good works. Different than core convictions. Faith is different than core convictions. This is a false dichotomy. And in Jesus, for the first time, the human race sees somebody whose public convictions, what he says, private convictions, what he feels, and core convictions, what he actually believes and shows by how he lives, are absolutely congruent with each other. Now, we come to church, and this is where it gets a little scary. Um, The two people that I was talking about before, one of them is loving, gracious, generous, courageous, truthful, and so the other one is like diametrically opposed. They both publicly affirm the same convictions. They both privately think they believe the same stuff. They would both say, yes, I affirm the Bible is the Word of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe in the resurrection. They both believe they believe this stuff, but their mental maps about how things really are are fundamentally opposed to each other. And of course, the great danger is that the guy whose mental map is utterly opposed to Jesus doesn't even know it, because he's convinced, I believe. There was a, um... So you're fooling yourself, John. You are. Because you're convinced that you believe in Jesus Christ, yet I know for a fact, and so do you, John, you sin daily. You don't live according to your core convictions. Uh, church in Minnesota, this one actually did happen, and, and um, uh, they're one of the churches that recites the Apostles' Creed each week when they gather for worship. Uh, oh, no, not one of those places. Um... They also, they were just switching over to computers when computers were first coming into use. And they found out when they did liturgies for services, like funerals, if one person died, they could have the service. And then when somebody else died, they could just plug in the name of the newly deceased and print out the bulletin. And it all worked fine. There was a woman uh, named Mary who died, and her service went fine. And then another woman named Edna died. So they told the computer, just replace the word Mary with the word Edna, and it worked great all through the service till they were reciting the Apostles' Creed. And everybody said, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Edna. 
And notice the swipe against churches who confess the Apostles' Creed every day. I don't know. That's what it says. It must be right. Um, we just kind of go on autopilot on the stuff we believe. And what I was thinking is it'd be really interesting when people gather together if instead of reciting the creed that we're supposed to recite, that we're supposed to believe, we had people actually recite the stuff they really do believe at the core level. Would that not be an interesting confession of faith? I believe a lie is an abomination under the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. <clears throat> At our church, we open with a confession of sins. I confess that I am by nature sinful and unclean. I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by the things I have done and the things I have left undone. I have not loved God with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. And I deserve God's present and eternal punishment. Notice he's swipe, taking a swipe at a church like this, but he's omitting something very important. Many times those churches that confess the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed Sunday after Sunday also understand what it means to confess your sins and to receive Christ's forgiveness for sins. Now, what Jesus is into is changing people at this level here. The core level he's pointing to. And by the way, uh, somebody was mentioned. Actually, Jesus is into raising you from the dead. He's actually into changing you from a goat into a sheep. From transforming you. Uh, burying him, burying you with him. Raising you from the dead. Yeah, I think you get the gist of what's going on here. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. Let me read to you uh, something from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, again. They came to Jesus and said to him, Lord, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is John, chapter 6, starting in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? People actually came to Jesus and asked him this question. And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. Believe. It doesn't say, change your core values. Go from being somebody who is an admirer to being a follower. Change your commitment levels and try harder and get busy. The work of God is that you believe in the one he has sent. Believe. Believe. That's the work of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
That is the good news. And what John Ortberg just said about the difference between a Christ follower and a Christian paints the Christian out to be the bad guy because the Christian believes. The Christian uses Jesus Christ to be saved because Christ has offered himself to be used in such a way. And we wait for our glorious salvation which will appear on the last day, Jesus Christ himself, who will bring the dead with him and in the twinkling of an eye we will be gathered with him and the saints in the clouds and be transformed and be with the Lord forever and ever. This is our hope. This is the Christian message. This Christ follower stuff, that ain't Christianity. That's not what the shepherd teaches. That's not what the king of kings taught. The work of God is to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. And to that, I say, Amen. Now, if you would like to email me and let me know how your commitment level is going to make you more worthy and makes you a Christ follower, how you've gone from being an admirer of Jesus to a follower of Jesus, and that your core convictions have been so changed that you've stopped sinning, please email me. You can reach me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time. Have a good weekend and God bless you.